0: Stanford University. Direction one. Welcome. You should be in the quad, facing Memorial Church, standing near the arcade just to the right of the church. We will soon be crossing the arcade and begin walking down the small paved path. Here now is Don Kennedy.
1: Loop 2 takes you from the administrative heart of the campus up a slight incline whose farthest point overlooks Lake Lagunita before circling back to Memorial Church. Our themes for this part contrast two different pairs of themes. One is the school versus the farm, the other, the native versus the exotic.
0: Direction 2
1: From facing the front of Memorial Church, Cast through the arcade to the right. If I've timed this right, botanist Catherine Preston will be waiting for us near a tree that's growing right beside the church. Well, this is a very restful and shady spot, and there's Catherine. I might tell those of you who have just joined us that Catherine is associate director of the Human Biology Program and has been integrally involved in the development of this podcast.
2: Hi, Don. Hi, everybody.
1: Hi there. Great to see
3: you. Hi, Catherine.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Hi, Catherine.
1: Catherine, you're a botanist. Can you tell us something about this tree, the one with the three-part trunk?
2: This is an avocado tree. You probably won't see any avocados on it. I never have. But you can recognize its large, smooth, oval leaves, which are typical of avocados and other close relatives like bay laurel. And this is one of the campus trees I've gotten to know about through Ron Bracewell's book, The Trees of Stanford. It's a fabulous resource, as I'm sure you know, having written the foreword to the book.
1: Well, I did it, and I did it not because I'm a tree expert, but because, like a lot of other people at Stanford, I know and love Ron Bracewell, whose loss to this campus is still a pretty significant loss.
2: So Professor Bracewell speculated in his book that this avocado tree was not planted by landscapers, but is actually instead an overgrown office plant liberated from its pot by a surreptitious gardener. Shall we continue?
0: Direction three.
2: I'd like you to take a look at the birdbath up ahead since it's the only one on campus and has been around for such a long time. Just follow the curved path until you reach the gray marble birdbath.
1: The engraving at the base of the birdbath is pretty weathered and might be pretty hard to decipher. It reads, and I quote, Dedicated to the memory of Barbara Jordan, who loved the birds, by the Western Outdoor Clubs, 1930." Barbara Jordan was the daughter of Stanford First's president, David Starr Jordan, who was, by the way, a noted natural historian himself. Sadly, she died of scarlet fever in 1900 at the age of nine. The bird bath was dedicated to her because her interest in birds was so exceptional. She had already collected nearly 300 volumes about birds. If she wasn't Stanford's first exceptional birder, she was probably the most precocious.
2: Yes, I read about her death in Jordan's autobiography. She and her father were extremely close and she was very much like him. Her death was a terrible tragedy.
0: Direction 4.
2: There's another memorial over here in the circle of wooden benches around the ornamental cherry tree. The second bench on the left, it's dedicated to Amy Blue, who was Associate Vice President for Administrative Services and Facilities. Her remarkable life inspired friends and colleagues to establish a memorial prize for staff in her honor.
1: Katherine, can you tell us something about the tree behind the bench, the one with the dark, shiny leaves?
2: As you probably know, those leaves are technically called compound leaves, which means that they are made up of smaller subunits. In this case, they're composed of pairs of nearly round leaflets. This is a carob tree.
1: As in the chocolate substitute?
2: Yes. Female trees make fleshy pods that turn shiny and dark as they dry, and they have a faint chocolate odor. The tree is sometimes called St. John's Bread because some believe that John the Baptist subsisted on the fruit as he wandered the desert. Carob trees are native to the Mediterranean region, and they tolerate dry climates well.
0: Can we see the chocolatey pods
2: here? No, this particular tree is a male and does not bear carob pods, only pollen-producing flowers.
0: Direction five. Facing the carob tree, let your eyes drift to the right until you spot the path leading from the circle.
2: Let's continue past the benches, where we'll see parts of another significant collection donated to the University. This one not of books, of course, but of bushes. Dozens of rare camellia hybrids grown in nearby woodside by the late alumnus Marjorie O'Malley. The bulk of her collection now resides in the San Francisco Botanical Garden at Striving Arboretum. Camellias originated in East Asia, but camellia mania has spread worldwide.
0: Direction 6.
1: From this spot, O'Malley's camellias spread to the left, but leaving them behind, you should cross the asphalt and head toward the arch. Once there, turn right and enter the arcade leading toward the geology corner of the quad. While you're walking down the arcade toward geology corner, this is a good time to say a few words about Earth Sciences at Stanford. There's a real history here of the 33 four-year colleges and universities within California. Stanford is the only one with an entire school rather than a department or a program that's recognized as dedicated to earth sciences. Geology as a discipline has a long history here. In fact, Stanford's first professor hired in 1891 was a geologist by the name of John Casper Branner who arrived with two full boxcars of books. An entire corner of the quad would be dedicated to geology in 1904. It would take almost 80 years to outgrow the geology corner and spread to the Mitchell Earth Sciences Building, ahead on the left. About 22 years to spread to the Green Earth Sciences Building, which is beyond that one to the west, and just 15 to spread further west still to parts of Y2E2, nicknamed for the Environment and Energy Building, named for supporters Jerry Yang and Akiro Yamazaki. The expansion toward the west is also a movement away from the sandstone symmetry of the Quad and toward what had been the sprawling Stanford Farm. The successively more modern buildings also reflect changing attitudes towards ecology and natural ecosystems.
0: Direction seven.
1: Now when you exit the arcade at the corner and step back onto the asphalt, keep your eye out for oncoming bicycles whose riders appear to have great faith in their own immortality. (laughs) If you turn and look back, you'll see the date 1904 engraved on the sandstone overhead. As you cross the asphalt to the steps leading up to the Mitchell building, you'll see a stone wall made from an interesting local rock called serpentine. Serpentine, along with a hodgepodge of sedimentary and volcanic rocks, make up what's called the Franciscan Formation. This jumble of rocks was formed in a marine environment and now makes up the near wall of the San Andreas Fault. Serpentine rocks dissolve slowly into serpentine soil, which is hard for most plants to tolerate. But serpentine soils have an entourage of plant species that have adapted to deal with them. These native serpentine plants literally held their ground against the largely unplanned spread of non-native annual grasses introduced from the Mediterranean 150 years ago with the arrival of Europeans. As you climb the stairs you should know that Paul Ehrlich's group has been studying the Bay checkerspot butterfly since 1960, that is for about 40 checkerspot generations.
3: The serpentine soils are of course also host to the butterfly, uh, and the interesting thing there is that uh, the persistence of the native California plants, which the butterflies eat, has allowed them to survive. But one of the sad things is that uh, evolution works, and. Now more and more of the European plants are gradually evolving races that allow them to live on the serpentine, and as a result, they're replacing the food plants for the butterflies, uh, which in fact have disappeared from Jasper Ridge in large part already because of climate change.
1: That's so interesting. Uh, There would be lots more to be said about this, uh, because- Oh yeah, I can talk about it for about six hours if you'd like me. Thanks, Paul. But people are getting tired of
3: standing around. (laughs) And furthermore, you turned your attention to birds as well. That was the influence of a crazy president of Stanford (laughs) University named Don Kennedy, who I introduced to football and he introduced me to birds, which turned out to be a wonderful organism to study if you're interested in having your conservation results be translatable to the average community, where many more people are turned on by birds than are by butterflies. Well, ignoring the, uh, the outright
1: lies contained in that, this is a good time to move along.
0: Direction 8.
1: I hope you've reached the top of the stairs by now. Well, exactly on schedule, here is Earth Sciences Dean Pam Matson. We're very fortunate that Dean Matson is able to meet us here at the Mitchell Building. Hi, Pam.
4: Hi, Don. Great to see you and all of you. Hi, Hi
1: Pam. Hi, Pam. Direction 9. Everyone, Dean Matson is going to escort us to the far side of the Mitchell building. Let's follow it around to the left, and let's pause when we see Panama Mall. Pam, perhaps we could start with changes you've seen here over the years.
4: Well, Don, I came to Stanford about 12 years ago, and when I arrived, the School of Earth Sciences had just begun its evolution from a, a great school of solid earth sciences to a school that focuses on the sciences of the planet Earth. At that point, the Earth Systems Program, uh, which used to reside right here in in the Mitchell Building, was uh, leading us in that direction, Uh, 100-plus undergrads working together to try to understand the ways in which the Earth system works and the ways in which people and our environment interact.
1: Yeah, Earth Systems is one of Stanford's many IDPs, that's short for interdisciplinary programs. And it will surprise a lot of people that nearly a third of our undergraduates get degrees in these programs rather than in individual disciplinary departments.
4: Yeah, that's that's something that has amazed me too.
3: And one of the nice things about being at Stanford is that it has the best interdisciplinary research on the environment of any university in the world.
4: Students in Earth Systems were, and still are, dedicated to making the planet a better place. They've actually kind of, I think, led all of us, the faculty and staff and students from around Stanford, in developing an an initiative on environment and sustainability that focuses some of our research efforts and some of our teaching efforts and some of our outreach efforts on solving the big, key challenges of sustainability
1: and not a minute too soon. Pam, while we're working, perhaps you could tell us a little something about the initiative and sketch it out as a project.
4: All of the schools at Stanford, Earth Sciences and the other schools got together and created an initiative that would draw on the strengths of faculty and students from around the university to address what we see as the the huge sustainability challenges facing the planet how do we meet the needs of people for food and energy and water and shelter and education and so on while at the same time protecting and sustaining the life support systems of the planet, the climate system, the atmosphere, the species and ecosystems on land and in the oceans that provide so many of the things that we need. How do we do those things together, meet the needs of people and protect the environment? Well, our faculty from all around the university and our our students are working together on a number of major projects to address that challenge.
1: Stanford is really lucky to have you as dean here in nurse sciences, but of course being a dean may leave you only a limited amount of time for the research you love. Do tell us something about that though.
4: Well just just really briefly. I started out my professional career as a, as a botanist, actually, and I worked a lot in beautiful tropical forests, and I realized pretty quickly on that they're changing very rapidly. So I began to focus on tropical deforestation, conversion of forest to agriculture, and uh, trying to understand what the consequences of those changes are. Soon after that, I realized that I'd be much happier if I could engage in helping to solve the problem rather than just identify the problem. And I have since then worked with economists and agronomists and people in many different disciplines to try to improve the way we we manage agriculture so that we can conserve the remaining natural ecosystems on the planet.
1: Land use, climate change, it's, it's all linked together, isn't it? And our research efforts and the aims of our podcast actually have much in common. Both call attention to the biological heritage of a place and encourage the recognition of what's required to sustain it or get it back.
4: Yeah, absolutely, and I think our students are dedicating their lives to making sure that we don't just talk the talk, but that we walk the walk. The other thing I think that's interesting as you, you know, walk around Stanford campus is to realize that every part of Stanford is engaged in the sustainability challenge. We're building green buildings. We're using water resources efficiently. We're caring and worrying about how to reduce our energy use and so forth.
3: Now Stanford certainly walks the walk. Well, look here. We're
1: at Panama Mall. I'm afraid it's time to walk over to the Termin Engineering Center, where chemical engineer Channing Robertson is gonna meet us. Pam, this has been really fabulous. Thank you so much for taking the time out to join us on this part of the trip.
4: Well, thanks so much for walking by Mitchell and Earth Sciences, and, and it's, it's always great to talk with you. Thanks.
3: thanks a lot, Pam.
4: Direction
0: 10.
3: To
1: reach the Termin Engineering Center, cross at the intersection and walk towards the building on the
4: right and be alert. Watch out for bicycles.
1: <laughs> you may remember that when the university first opened in 1891, its first faculty member was the book-collecting geologist John Branner. Five of the other 14 faculty hired that year were engineering professors. In the 118 years since their arrival, engineering alumni, faculty, and staff have founded more than 845 companies. This building is named for the most influential among that engineering faculty, Fred Turman.
0: Direction 11.
1: Follow the pink-flowering oleander bushes to the right and pause by the railing and the overlook. It's great to see you, Channing. Everyone, this is Professor Channing Robertson.
5: Hi Channing. Hello
1: Channing. You know, as a chemical engineer, you've worked predominantly with biological systems. But as I understand it, your intention is to use nature's machinery in part to circumvent the need for fossil resources and create more opportunities for renewables. Could you just tell us a little bit about how this factors into our everyday lives?
6: Sure Don. Years ago, I became interested in the way biological machines have evolved in such a way as to perhaps capture some of that power. And My first foray into that was in the early 1970s when we had yet another energy crisis and it became evident to some of us that in terms of supplying energy we have basically two choices. You use something the sun has provided us with or you use nuclear, and that includes geothermal through radioactive decay. And we felt that waiting for nature to uh, store and create fossil resources in the form of shale and oil and and gas, which takes millions and millions of years, we'd go back to the source, which was the plant matter. That ultimately decays into those sources and short-circuit the route from sun to the production of energy.
1: You have an interest in biomimicry at a number of different levels and obviously it's been an inspiration for some of your other work. Tell us a little bit about biomimicry and how you've used it as a chemical engineer.
6: As an engineer I had always been quite intrigued by how nature seems to solve difficult problems and thought that in teaching engineering to students, I could use nature's blueprints for solving difficult problems as a means of getting engineers just simply interested in the more mundane parts of the profession. I think the first thing that attracted me was that in teaching fluid mechanics, which can be a somber subject for many students. (laughs) If I could build it around examples where life forms have used fluid mechanics to their advantage, it might get students interested. Why do cactuses that survive, why are they fluted instead of round cylinders? And it's because the ones that were round cylinders blew over. And you say, well, why is that? Well, the drag of the forces of wind on um, fluted cactuses are less than on ones that are not fluted. And that gives rise to something that's very counterintuitive. Uh, I think, and then that leads you to understanding certain aspects of fluid mechanics and Newton's law. Then I can take that to things like why are there stitches on baseballs and on tennis balls, hair on tennis balls, why are there dimples on golf balls. And it all relates to the same physical principle, but it goes back to nature. Look at any jet aircraft today and you'll see a winglet, the little vertical protrusions at the end of wings. That came from looking at birds and realizing that very large birds use that as a drag reducing device. So you add a little weight, but you save in terms of drag on the aircraft, that saves fuel and it becomes something that, you know, we found from nature. So formation flying, look at geese and ducks the way they fly. We now have people here at Stanford in the aeronautics and astronautics department proposing that when you fly long haul jets from the west to the east coast or back, we should fly seven or eight of them in formation and we'd save a tremendous amount of fuel.
3: Yeah, you certainly could save fuel. As a pilot, uh, I know how much fun it would be also to fly in a V formation.
6: So you only have to look at nature and figure it's had several billion years to do all these experiments. It's been, what, four or five hundred years since Newton. So in another example of biomimicry where we can learn about uh, how we might engineer anti-reflective coatings on computer screens and on solar arrays is simply to turn to moths. And if you look at the structure of moths' eyes, they have very small pits in them, and these pits are smaller than the wavelength of light. And so when light strikes them, they reflect back very little of the light that actually contacts them and make super anti-reflective coatings. Another example of this where you actually see colors is on birds. The wings of birds, which have this many times a yellow or purplish or very golden sheen to them, it's not because the bird's wings actually are dyed that color, it's because they're only reflecting that part of the light's spectrum which contain those colors. So with nanopatterning and nanotechnology, we may be able to make colored objects from objects that have no inherent color and we can have very, very smooth appearing objects reflect very little light.
1: As we stand here, Channing, I can't help thinking about engineering and sustainability and the forthcoming demise of the Turman Engineering Building, which is right in front of us here. There's a rumor that termites may have played a role. I'm not sure that that's the part of the issue here, but it's a building of great interest to Stanford people because it was such an exciting experiment in the beginning. What happened to it?
6: Well, the termite building was built out of wood, and that was uh, at a time when most of the buildings going up in the early 70s were hermetically sealed concrete reinforced structures and the difference there was not only was it made out of wood the windows could open and it had a natural convection ventilation system that was connected to a pond that sat beneath it and so in its time it was a a very futuristic piece of architecture the problem was is that the major pieces of wood were were laminated glue laminated pieces of wood and uh, fungus so-called dry rot but it's not dry at all it's actually fungus that go in there and begin eating and they love cellulose. So we like to say that termite is now held up by the exoskeletons of either all the termites or fungi or both that uh, sort of inhabited that structure. So it's been fairly well hollowed out and consumed and uh, has served its, uh, you know, its, its useful life and will have to come down. And actually we have a, a steel shell around it now to continue to hold it up. But you know, an example that uh, if you go to Harare in Zimbabwe, There's a new set of buildings called Eastgate Center, which have been built and designed around African termite mounds. And this is because termites live in these enormous structures in the ground, and the termites eat on fungus, and the fungus grow at 87 degrees Fahrenheit. And yet the temperature around the mounds varies from freezing to 150 and 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And the termites have figured out a ventilation system that they can open and shut in order to control the temperature so that they can survive and this same set of sort of vertical conduit structures have been put into these buildings in harare and there's no heating air conditioning in them it's all done the way the termites do it so termites can be good too
1: (laughs) i thought that was terrific channing thank you so much
6: thanks channing
1: thanks a lot channing walking away from the pool You'll see a barbecue pit and a circle of stone benches in the shade of an oak grove dedicated to James Gibbons. Jim Gibbons, also a student of Fred Terman's and later Dean of the School of Engineering, was four times special counsel to the President for Industry Relations.
0: Direction 12. Take a seat for a moment on one of the stone benches. Soon, we will leave the shade of this grove, cross the street, and enter the New Guinea Sculpture Garden. First though, we want to mention a few things about
1: New Guinea. The garden itself is a pocket that seems like another world, so it might help to consider the nation of Papua New Guinea and its flora and fauna. About 8,000 years ago, people are thought to have arrived on the island located just north of Australia. As humans spread across, they diversified culturally. Eventually the island, which is huge as islands go, but only about the size of California, would support an astonishing 869 tribal languages. The diversity of languages tells us something about the rugged terrain with its many barriers to movement, and that insularity tells us something about the diversity of Papua New Guinea's plants and birds. Westerners became aware of the island when Ferdinand Magellan's expedition stopped in around 1520. Europeans became aware of the island's teeming and exotic bird life like the spectacular Greater Bird of Paradise, through specimens brought back on returning voyages.
0: You know, drawings that Rembrandt and Durer made of those birds present a really interesting aspect of science art. They record a misunderstanding about the bird's anatomy and a related error in assumptions about their behavior. For a while, Europeans thought the mysterious birds never landed, remaining airborne throughout life. It turns out that the Papua New Guineans preserved the birds by smoking them. In the process, the legs invariably fell off and specimens arrived in Europe legless.
1: And that accounts for the bird's Latin name, Paradisia apoda, meaning without feet. New Guinea and its inhabitants would remain mysterious for the next 500 years. Even during most of the 20th century, few Westerners knew much about it. But much changed in Papua New Guinea from that point on. By 1994, when 10 men from the middle Sepik River arrived here on campus to produce the art in the garden across the street, many of their traditions were crumbling or had already fallen away. Some of the visiting artists were from Cuoma villages. Kuoma means mountain man. The densely vegetated terrain they traditionally inhabited Includes steep ridges separated by swampy valleys. Men and women, in many ways, led separate lives. There were lots of taboos, including strict rules about who could look at what. When headhunting was banned in the 1950s, it removed one of the key practices holding the traditional way of life together, and it wasn't long before others gave way. One of these key practices was the secret Cuoma men kept about the bush spirits. Much of the art you will see in the gardens across the street tells stories about bush spirits whose favor was sought to assure successful hunts, successful yam crops, and so forth, and who were blamed when things went wrong. Much of the men's artwork never left the spirit house, a structure women were prohibited from entering. As modernization crept in and secrets were revealed. The Spirit House, about which you will hear as we enter the garden, lost its status as a safe haven for men and their secrets. Because women and children were not permitted inside the Spirit House and were forbidden to attend male activities in the forest, they were denied the opportunity to know what might be the biggest secret the men held, and that was that there was no big secret at all. During initiation, boys discovered that, like the land of Oz, the voices and noises the women and children attributed to the bush spirits were created by the men themselves.
0: Direction 13.
1: Let's make our way now toward Santa Teresa Street.
0: Direction 14. Here, you'll want to pause at the entrance of the garden.
1: So, Catherine, are the plants in this sculpture garden native to Papua New Guinea?
2: Well, no. The concept of nativeness becomes complicated once we enter the garden. The sculptures rise above a swath of exotic plants cutting through typical California oak woodland. As your question suggests, we might expect the garden plants, like the art, to have come from Papua New Guinea. In reality, most of the species planted here are not native to either California or Papua New Guinea. Plants adapted to the Sepik River region would require nearly swamp-like conditions and high temperatures all year long. Fortunately, most of the plants chosen for this garden evolved in dry places and so require little water. They're also not likely to escape cultivation and spread. And Such drought-tolerant, well-behaved plants help make this landscape sustainable in dry California.
1: Well, that's good, but so where do they come from?
2: Well, from the entrance to the garden, you can see plants from numerous parts of the world, including some California natives and some from the Asian Pacific region near Papua New Guinea. An interesting example is on the right, immediately at the garden entrance. Let me show you. Here is an agave called cordyline australis. Notice its long, narrow pointed leaves atop thin trunks about 7 feet tall. In May and June, this cordyline will be covered with tiny sweet-scented white flowers just buzzing with pollinators. Although this species is from New Zealand, it has close relatives in Papua New Guinea. The same species is planted in the main quad and throughout the New Guinea Garden.
1: How about some of the plants further along the path? Some of them remind me of flowers I've seen in South Africa.
2: Absolutely. Several of the showy flowering species do indeed come from South Africa. For example, look just beyond the cube-shaped rock sculpture just past the garden entrance on one of the long, narrow, raised knolls framing the path. Those plants with fleshy speckled leaves and red and yellow flowers are aloes from South Africa. Another South African plant can be found to the left of the path near the pair of informational signs. Year round, the plant looks sort of like a large sage plant with pairs of leaves alternating up shrubby stems. In June and July, however, the plant is covered with fuzzy orange clusters of flowers, giving the plant its common name, lion's tail.
1: Surely those tall trees with the feathery leaves right behind a lion's tail are not native.
2: You're right. Those two trees are so-called silky oaks. They're not native, but Anna's hummingbirds love them, at least from May through early July when they're covered in dull, orange-colored clusters of small flowers.
1: But they don't look like oaks.
2: No, they don't, do they? This tree is not an oak at all, but a Gravelia robusta, native to Australia. Other members of this large genus can be found in Papua New Guinea. And on top of the knoll to your right, there's another good example of the confusion caused by common names. These palm-like plants are sometimes called sago palms. They're not palms at all, though. They're cycads, which are gymnosperms, and much older on the evolutionary tree than the flowering plants. The story grows even more complicated because there is a completely different plant, also known as sago palm, and this time it's a true palm, which is harvested by people along the Sepik River and processed into a very starchy flower used in cooking. However, that true palm, a New Guinea native, is not growing here in the garden. So in this tale of two sagos, the character before you is the one less connected to New Guinea.
1: Those of you who took Loop 7 will remember Patience Young as the Cantor Art Center's curator for education, and Lisa Fremont, who is a Cantor docent and has for years been showing the outdoor sculpture garden to groups. Both are meeting us here and will be telling us a little about the sculptures and the creation of this sculpture garden. While you browse the art, see if you can differentiate between non-native and native elements. Among the carvings, consider the work based on artifacts from far off non-native Papua New Guinea and those based on Rodin, a European artist so well known to North Americans that his work could be considered part of our native culture.
0: Direction 15. At this point, you should be approaching the first large wooden carving.
1: Ah, there are Patience and Lisa. Let's join them. Hello Patience, hello Lisa.
5: Hi Lisa and Patience. Hi Hi there Patience and Lisa.
1: Patience, it's great to see you again. I understand that you can tell us about the year this sculpture garden was created.
7: In 1994, 10 master artists from the Cuoma and the Yatma cultures came to this garden to produce the artwork you'll see here. The cross-cultural project was the brainchild of Jim Mason, a Stanford graduate student in anthropology. Jim's view was that we knew quite a lot about the people of New Guinea, but they knew very little about us. So why not invite the artists to do the work here? Jim raised the funds, and from May through September of 1994, the ten men were artists in residence. Their presence generated a very warm campus reaction. The artists, all men, formed two men teams of an elder familiar with the old ways and myths and a young partner with the physical strength to produce the art. In their work, you'll see a fascinating mix of traditional and modern, Papua, New Guinean and Western, myth and icon, and perhaps most intriguing, all of it blending so that you'll see traces of artifacts within contemporary art. The 40 pieces of art are either wood, brought from Papua New Guinea and carved or painted, or carved pumice, brought in from near Mano Lake. Quoma artists produced the painted work, using a mix of traditional colors, schemes, and modern latex paints. Ayatmal artists produced the carvings, using handmade iron adzes, axes, hardened chisels, knives, and here, chainsaws. Much of the wood here is quilla, what we call ironwood, that had been shipped from Papua New Guinea. There's a reason we call it ironwood, but like all wood, it too will eventually gradually deteriorate. But significant efforts to slow its degradation have been taken. You probably won't be able to see it, but the posts are supported by an internal steel pin anchored to a deep cement base. The base keeps the post from touching the ground, warding off invasive pests and avoiding ground moisture. Initially, soluble borates, which are non-toxic to people and pets, were used to control those fungi, wood-boring insects, termites, carpenter ants, and some surface molds that could get past the cement and borate buffers. Also, this method allowed the entire length of each pole to be carved and visible.
1: We'd love to hear what you have to say about this sculpture of Kura.
7: This first large wooden carving in the garden portrays an Ayatmal creation myth. The woman, whose name is Kura, was marooned on a lake and saved by a crocodile. Kura joined the crocodile in his underwater home and bore two children who could morph between eagles and crocodiles, both power symbols. Here we see Kura, lifted by one of her bird-crocodile children, to carry her back to her village. If you walk behind the sculpture, you'll see that the bird, with the outspread wings, has a crocodile's tail.
1: Before I have you pause the podcast so you can explore the art at your own pace, let's look at a few examples that illustrate myths and general themes, all of which provide opportunities to view the narratives through a science lens. To view Kura through a science lens and as an example of science art, we might consider the forms through an evolutionary point of view. For example, take a look at the conjoined bird and crocodile. Since birds evolved from dinosaurs, they still carry reptilian traits. In fact, the scale-like skin of the crocodile, like the scales of a snake, for example, appear as feathers once one crosses the evolutionary sequence to birds. Up ahead, as you move forward past the carving of Kura, you'll see carved posts associated with the traditional spirit house. Here now is Lisa, who will tell you about the traditional spirit house.
8: As you've just heard, in Sepik River cultures, men and men alone traditionally gathered in spirit houses. As you move forward, you'll see that a set of carved posts on the left have been positioned to form the rectilinear outline of a spirit house. In Papua New Guinea, when posts were erected, the bones of ancestors and warriors killed in battle would be buried beneath or placed beside the posts. Here, not so much. The narrative of the center post recounts a Cuoma creation myth, which explains where the ancestors of all the different Cuoma clans came from. You'll see quite a few crocodiles here in the sculpture garden. Sometimes they represent Taekwon an ancestor guided by a bird on his nose who roamed the primal seas searching for dry land that humans could inhabit. The mythic crocodile can be seen as consuming bodies and plants and growing from something very small to something too large to be seen in its entirety namely the earth itself.
1: We have another nice example of science art coming up. Here's a crocodile Here's a bird perched on the crocodile, perhaps taking up a role in its navigation, since birds have attained iconic status as navigators, especially among seafaring islanders from Oceania,
0: The crocodile and the bird are found on the first central pole entitled Wapasui.
1: If you look online, you can see masks from that part of the world, which are topped with stuffed frigate birds who presumably guided the wearer.
0: You can also find online related relics from halfway around the world. For example, uh, there's a 3rd century bronze Celtic helmet that's topped with a winged bronze bird, and the helmet of Mercury, the Roman messenger god, that almost always has wings. Direction 16.
1: As you pass the two carved logs lying on the ground, you'll see that their contents have been scooped out of one end. Their slit gong drums and were made from garment wood shipped in from Papua New Guinea. Give them a tap and listen to the sound that back in Papua New Guinea carries for 20 kilometers. Surely Lisa has something to say about them.
8: Well I'd say they served as the cell phone of their day. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Just keep going.
8: Many of the figures carved into the remaining poles portray totemic plants and animals of the artist's clans. These figures, and many others, would also be seen on spirit house ceilings. They document, among other things, the resources the clan laid claim to. As you look around at the carvings and paintings, you might find, in addition to animal chimeras already mentioned, opossums, bats, turtles, snakes, and boars. Notice, too, images of entire birds, like the cassowary, the large flightless bird described by some as the most dangerous bird in the world, whose spur can slash and strike a blow that can kill a person. You'll find a cassowary on the pole near the slit gong drum entitled King Wanmiri. See if you can also find an owl or two. A number of the birds look like hornbills.
0: Yes, that one looks like it might be a hornbill.
1: Yes, I think that's right.
0: You'll find a hornbill. On the poll entitled Mayimbor.
1: For those of you unfamiliar with hornbills, they're usually brightly colored, social, big billed birds that nest in cavities or crevices. In Papua New Guinea, as in Melanesia in general, they're often found in art.
0: I've heard that in some regions they might be associated with headhunting or even the transfer of power.
1: Well, that might be so. I suppose that the idea of transfer might be key. During nesting, the female molts and is flightless. The male hornbill brings food to her and their young. In fact, the female is sealed inside the cavity entirely, behind a mud barricade that reduces the entrance to a slot just enough to transfer food through. I've seen a male hornbill slip a lizard through to an imprisoned female. It's just a remarkable procedure to watch.
4: How cool.
8: The painted posts also portray various local nature spirits found around Cuoma villages. For instance, the large snake on the tallest post is a nature spirit that transforms between a stone and a snake. Knowing the big Cuoma secret Don mentioned earlier, that the men were behind the sounds attributed to the bush spirit, might diminish the sense of mystery of the culture in the region but respect for how the social system might have evolved may well grow on you the longer you stay in the garden and the more closely you look at the art. Patterns will emerge. Look for the zigzag design representing wind-generated waves or the scars on human forms representing the skin of crocodiles or organic patterns resembling seeds and leaves. Also look for bush spirits like the faces carved into the top of the Yatmol posts, representing Winjimbu, a sometimes good, sometimes not, bush spirit, and look for the many skulls. Direction 17.
1: Enjoy the remaining carvings and painted poles. As you head toward the stone carvings, toward the end of the path, they might seem somewhat familiar. As you get closer, you'll see they were inspired by the campus collection of works by Auguste Rodin, including The Thinker and The Gates of Hell found at the Cantor Center. When you've had a chance to look them over, turn the podcast back on.
8: Some of the stone carving at the back of the garden tell dark stories. One portrays a woman whose husband's amorous attentions were so exhausting she threw her vagina into the river. It gets worse. When her husband dove in after it, he drowned. It gets worse still. When his brother found out, he sought retribution and killed the woman. Another portrays the punishment, in the form of a flood, of a man who murdered his brother's wife. You can see the unfortunate victims. As Dawn noted, two other carvings are Papua New Guinea versions of Rodin's The Thinker and his The Gates of Hell, housed beside the Cantor Center across campus that Rodin's work resonated with the Papua New Guinea artists reminds me that art is truly a universal language. The sculpture, entitled The Gates of
0: Hell, is located in the far corner.
1: Patience and Lisa, you've brought this sculpture garden to life for us. Thanks so very much. Thanks, Patience and Lisa. welcome.
5: Thanks, thanks, Patience. Thanks.
1: Befitting the exotic feel of this garden, I want to mention a non-native bird you might see here and its effect on woodpeckers, titmice, and other local oak woodland species that nest in holes and crevices. European starlings, which you've seen in other parts of campus, were introduced intentionally in New York Central Park in 1890 as part of a program to introduce all birds mentioned by Shakespeare. These invaders are secondary hole nesters. That is, they will take the roosting or nesting holes of woodpeckers and other cavity nesters given the chance. They'll raise their broods and like bad tenants leave the place a mess, often unfit for their former owners to
3: reclaim. Starlings are very successful birds and one of the reasons appears to be that they forage by not poking things aside with their bill but by actually spreading grass stems and so on. By opening their bill their eyes are able to focus right in between and pick up little organisms there so their foraging method seems to be very very effective and of course uh, they're an unhappily very effective bird.
0: I've heard that their gape works backwards.
3: Well basically it's backwards because their force goes to opening the bill rather than closing it. That said you
1: probably won't see many here in the New Guinea sculpture garden. Then again you probably won't see many resident birds either. There are plenty of trees that seasonally provide insect prey or acorns as well as canopy that provide safe haven, picnic tables where commensal species like brewers, blackbirds or western scrub jays might lurk to pick up leftover crumbs and flowering trees and plants that might attract Hannah's hummingbirds. Yet it appears that there are not enough resources to support resident birds. Instead, birds fly in, feed, and then depart. Nevertheless, you might catch sight of an acorn woodpecker, a western scrub jay, or the occasional European starling, Anna's hummingbird, dark-eyed junco, and oak titmouse among the host of woodland species that are found on campus. If it's spring or summer, you may see the occasional butterfly. You might not notice any fruit tree leaf rollers or California oak worm, but they might be there too If you do see one California tussock moth or caterpillar, you'll probably see many more of them. They can develop very large populations uh, in these and other places. They may be a harmless nuisance to people, but they're not benign when they come into contact with the pumice sculptures. Uh, Both the critters and their webs and their droppings are acidic and that's enough to spoil the finish on these sculptures. To a degree, the canopy and the absence of undergrowth determine the species found in here, but the sculpture garden visitors also play a role. Crumbs and crusts dropped at the picnic table attract commensal birds and mammals. Some we like, some we don't. Nearby construction sites and the vehicular and pedestrian traffic just outside the garden have an effect on species that may make them shy away from both people and disturbance. Is it possible to encourage more birds to hang out in the garden? We wonder if planting ground cover where ground birds might hide could make a significant difference. We also wonder if bluebird and chickadee boxes, as long as the surrounding area is pesticide-free, could make a difference too.
0: Direction 18.
1: You should be near the sidewalk along Lomita Drive.
0: If you're lost, just return to the garden entrance and then follow Don's directions.
1: Turn right along Lomita Drive, walk about 100 yards uphill, cross the unpaved parking lot on the right, and climb the short staircase to the top of the dam. But as we walk, I want to say one more thing about birds from Papua New Guinea. That is, eventually Westerners would come to know that Papua New Guinea, for its size, has more bird species than anywhere in the world
3: which has been of great economic importance to the government of Papua New Guinea uh, because it brings in a steady flow of money through ecotourism. And so it's, of course, also helps to preserve that wonderful bird community.
1: Species never seen before by scientists or species thought lost to extinction are still being found there. In 2006, an expedition to an extremely remote area in the Foja Mountains found half a dozen new species. Finding these rarities was surely exhilarating, but so too was the sense of place the researchers encountered. One of the team's scientists described the dawn chorus, that is, the bird songs one heard at the start of a new day, as, quote, the most fantastic he had ever heard. Here is an example. Listen to this recording of a local chorus and compare it with the one the Kuma and other Native people would have heard. Compared to the Papua New Guinea Dawn Chorus, as you've heard, the one in the New Guinea Sculpture Garden is muted. Mostly, it's just voices carried in from nearby Kingscote or Robley Hall or beyond. This garden is a strip of woodland bounded by streets on two sides. Unlike a Papua New Guinea forest, it lacks the safety of ground cover. In the spring of 2009, it seemed to be a preferred haunt of Cooper's hawks, notorious bird hunters, who were seen mating in the canopy on one occasion, stopping in twice to perch there on another, and feeding their young of the year there on a third visit. Most of the other birds seen here also just fly through or pause relatively briefly. Thus, in contrast to Papua New Guinea with its isolated areas, whose bird populations don't drift much, the birds of the Papua New Guinea garden are drifters that don't stay long.
0: If the unpaved parking lot is full and you can't easily see the staircase, it's diagonally across from the parking lot entrance and climbs partly up the earthen dam direction, 19. When you reach the top of the staircase, take a moment to read the disclaimer on the large Lake Lagunita sign.
1: This overlook provides a vista of a seasonal lake that dries up by summertime. Just beyond the far bank at the base of the foothills you'll notice a ribbon of trees obscuring all but tiny sections of Unipro Serra Boulevard just beyond. Lake Lagunita or more commonly Lake Log was created more than a hundred years ago to serve as a reservoir It was formed by damming Los Trancos Creek and is now fed by a diversion from San Francisco Creek. It's the breeding territory for a population of California tiger salamanders who spend the summer on the dish. At some point from November to early December, those salamanders must get across a 50-foot wide Junipero Boulevard. In 1998, Stanford, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the California Department of Fish and Game, and Santa Clara County agreed to build a tunnel for the migrating salamanders, which were a candidate for listing under the Federal Endangered Species Act. With losses of up to 250 individuals every year, one in two migrating salamanders weren't making it to lake log. Meanwhile, here is Alan Launer, and it's great to see you, Alan.
5: Hey, Alan.
1: Hi there, Alan. Hey, Alan. Well, hi, thank you. Thank you for talking to me today. No one has been more closely involved with this project than campus biologist Alan Lowner, who has arranged to meet us here, as you see. It's great to have you here. We're hoping that you can tell us a little about the tunnel, or should I say tunnels.
9: For starters, where exactly are they? Almost directly across towards the buildings up on the hill, you can look down the road and you can see a set of three tunnels and some fencing that orient migrating sound through these tunnels. The road has existed there for 100 years, but trying to retrofit the road so it's salamander-friendly is very difficult. And so we end up having to build three drains, one for each tunnel. We hit the regional high-pressure gas line when we put tunnels in, so we had to move them a little bit. But they work okay. The Salamanders cross the road over about a mile and a half. The tunnels only protect about 350 feet of it can't have them spread too far because you have fences between them and you can't fence the entire mile and a half and think the salmoners will follow the fence to the tunnels. Since we put the tunnels in, we haven't had any salmoners die uh, on the roads. we tried to put cameras in them to monitor the success of the tunnels. Cameras work really well at taking pictures of various mammals using the tunnels, but didn't work pretty well with salmoners, so we rely on going out on rain nights and looking through the tunnels. So they do work a little bit.
1: So you get some
9: data by exploration oh, and yeah. measurement. Say a word or two about the data and what the data are telling you. Well, we're doing conservation in suburbia, so you have a lot of variables. A salamander and red of frogs and a whole suite of other organisms. So we're out there virtually every rainy night in November, December, and January recording when and where we see salamanders. In the spring, we monitor the number of eggs and larvae in Lagunita and the ponds we built in the foothills in 2003. Elsewhere on campus, we... We uh, walk the creeks, Matadero and San Francisco systems, day and night looking for frogs. If there's enough water, we snorkel looking for frogs and looking at the steelhead and the turtles. Try to uh, estimate trends and numbers and just how well things are doing and come up with conservation actions that will improve the lot of the local species.
1: Well, thanks so much, Alan. We'll be seeing you in Loop 3 where we walk around Lake Lagunita and perhaps we can say a word or two more about what you see in San Francisco Creek by way of trout and so forth.
5: Thanks Alan.
1: See you later Alan. Thanks Alan. And Catherine Preston will now tell you some things about the flora of Lake Lagunita.
2: The plants here are very typical of this part of California and we see lots of them other places on campus. The lake is surrounded by a ring of oak trees mostly coast live oaks. The hillside across the lake also sports many oaks, but they are interrupted primarily by California buckeyes. Depending on the season, these distant trees will be apparent in various ways. In May and June, they are green and covered with large pale flowers that form clusters about the size of a soup can. As June advances, their leaves begin to yellow and then brown so that in July the leaves will look sick. They're not. They're simply conserving water in the dry season by dropping their leaves and will stay leafless until early winter. Not all the plants here are native though. If there's no water, the lake bed will be covered in a patchwork of mostly introduced European weeds.
1: If the lake contains water, you might see air traffic, swallows, raptors, waterfowl coming in or taking off. In the shallows, you might see an occasional heron, an egret, or other marsh-dwelling species. In slightly deeper water, you often find mallards and other dabbling ducks upended as they forage off the bottom. If the water is deep enough, which it occasionally is in certain years, you might find diving ducks like the bufflehead as they spring back up after a dive underwater like a bathtub toy. Amid the emergent lake bed vegetation, you should spot red-winged blackbirds, and while on the dam you'll likely see the signature set, of oak woodland species, especially birds, responding to the line of bluebird and chickadee boxes. For a variety of reasons, this mix is likely to be richer here than in the central campus. If the lake bed is dry, many of the oak woodland birds might still be there, along with the common campus birds that live near structures, and you might see an occasional raptor overhead, or the occasional swallow but naturally there will be far less activity. Whether or not lake log has water, if the weather is good and you have the time, you might want to take loop three, which begins here and takes you around the lake's perimeter where you can pause to search for less common birds and interesting behavior and hear about other fauna. For example, one of the most interesting co-evolving predator and prey relationships is between the not uncommon red-sided garter snake and the rough-skinned new. The newt, which is common here, contains a very weak version of the neurotoxin found in pufferfish that it probably acquires by ingesting bacteria. Snakes that eat the newts sequester the poison. It doesn't make the snakes venomous, since they don't have venom-producing glands, though they may be harmful to predators that eat the snakes.
0: Direction 20.
1: Alan Launer will have more to say about Lake Log species in Loop 3. If, however, you're continuing with Loop 2, on your left you'll see a stone barbecue pit. Take the dirt path on this side of the pit and walk toward Lomita Drive. When you reach Lomita, cross at the crosswalk and enter the driveway to Kings Coat Garden on the corner. Lake Logs Dam provides a loose boundary between common campus species and fauna you would expect to find in relatively undisturbed open spaces in the surrounding hills. The Stanford area hosts more than 50 species of mammals, around 20 species of reptiles, about 12 species of amphibians, 10 of freshwater fish, and it's host to more than 175 birds, including those that just stop in during
3: migration. There are about 650 species of plants. Stanford is in a sense an island in the highly developed area of the Bay and as such it's extremely important for maintaining what biodiversity is left around here and development should be very strongly limited because of all the values that come along with the biodiversity. One of the things that Stanford can do is to find ways to be sure that every Stanford student does some field work, that is gets out and appreciates what the natural world does. Direction
0: 21. You should now be at the driveway leading to Kingscote.
1: Surprisingly, the apartments ahead of you are privately owned. Robert Harrison noted in his superb book, Gardens, an essay on the human condition, that Kingscote was until quite recently one of the few pieces of land on the central Stanford campus that are not under the direct control of the university. If you peek through the second opening in the hedge on your left, partway down the slope, You'll have a nice view of a fountain, a small pool, and its resident koi, and you'll get a sense of why Harrison calls Kingscote a quintessentially lyric garden. He says, and I quote, Unlike larger grounds that enfold in space and time as you wander around in them, here one gets a syncretic, unobstructed view of the whole, close quote. Sorry, syncretic? Syncretic refers to a kind of fusion or unity of multiple, sometimes contrary, beliefs or worldviews.
2: Indeed, from here you can see a sort of botanical syncretism in the pair of stately conifer trees flanking the end of the driveway. They provide an interesting contrast in symbolism as well as form and origin. On the right is a western red cedar from the Pacific Northwest. This fast-growing tree has soft, fragrant wood, and its uses range from simple construction and roofing to elaborate traditional carvings. It has been centrally important to the lives, livelihoods, and cultures of people native to the Pacific Northwest.
0: And the western red cedar was also used to carve the two crest poles on campus. The one in Canfield Court entitled the Stanford Legacy and the one in Dorman Grove.
2: On the left is a female yew tree native to Europe and the Middle East. Yews grow slowly and have extremely hard wood. Despite their own longevity, yews have always been associated with death. Their dense wood was favored for making artifacts of war, like shields and bows, and their foliage is toxic enough to kill livestock. Ewes have figured in religious ceremonies and medicine for centuries and are commonly planted in graveyards.
1: Everyone, here comes Stanford professor Robert Harrison, author of the book Gardens, an Essay on the Human Condition. I mentioned that earlier. Thanks so much for meeting us here at Kingscote, Robert, it's great to see you. Very nice to see you too, Don. Paul. Hi, Robert, Catherine. Hi, Robert. Daryl, everyone.
0: Good to see you, Robert.
1: How fortunate that you're carrying a copy of your book. It would be wonderful to start things off by hearing that wonderful passage about this garden.
0: Direction 22.
1: As you reach the bottom of the slope where the driveway forks, you might want to wander closer to the fountain on the left while Robert Harrison reads from his book.
10: Yeah, I'd be happy to read that passage. Uh, there is a real garden I would gladly call my own, even though I have no proprietary rights to it. It's called Kingscote. I have sought out its recess on several occasions, hoping to gain greater clarity about what a garden is in essence. And I have indeed accessed thoughts and insights there that had the place not existed, probably never would have seen the light of day or the light of consciousness, if you prefer. For some reason, it is almost always empty too small for recreational activities, with nowhere really to sit except on a low-lying limestone bench that is more ornamental than sedentary, it seems to have no purpose beyond its sheer self-affirmation as it lies there gathered within itself. It is neither ostentatious nor withdrawn, yet it has the aura of a secret. Few people, in fact, when you ask them about it, are aware of its existence. And in the various volumes about the history and architecture of Stanford in the university bookstore, there is no mention of it. It's almost as if it didn't exist. Yet once you step into it, you get a sense that you are in the quietly palpitating heart of this university and that everything somehow radiates out from here. Robert, that was wonderful.
1: And this surely is a place apart. In your book, you have some very interesting things to say about the relationship between art and gardens that I suspect are quite different from what we touched on in the Sculpture Garden. It would be wonderful if you could tell us a little
10: bit more about that relationship, especially where it occurs on the campus. Many scholars think of gardens as a genre of art, but I'm not sure about that. For me, gardens represent a conjugation of life and form. They are places where appearances draw attention to themselves. Now, artworks also stand before us as humanly created things whose principal purpose is self exhibition. They too draw attention to appearance. Yet, however much art may play a role in their design, gardens have a natural life of their own which exists independently of their formal determinations. Not matter, not idea, but life, in my view, is the phenomenon that finds articulation in gardens. Our response to them is never disinterested, is never merely aesthetic, if only because gardens appeal directly to our biophilia, or our love of life. The experience of being in Kingscoat is precisely that of being in it, alongside the water spiders, birds at their ablutions, the lizard on the rocks at the water's edge, the weeds, the boxwood, and all that thrives underground and in the air. The Stanford campus has many gardens and many kinds of gardens. Are
1: there any that you'd like to mention?
10: Well, I'd like to mention the connection between an institution of higher education like Stanford and gardens because I found in my research that this connection goes all the way back to the very first academy in the Western world, which was Plato's Academy, which was founded in a a walled park, garden-like environment. And there was a famous garden school of Epicurus, which was a literal kind of kitchen garden, we would call it, where the disciples cultivated the soil literally at the same time as they were cultivating their minds and their souls. And from there on, you have the Roman villas, the medieval bowers of the uh, medieval institutions, all the way through the British garden campuses to uh, the American campuses. And Stanford, I think, is a uh, beautiful connection between gardens and institutions of higher learning.
1: You know, there's a growing, I think, affection
10: for gardens, and
1: you must be seeing it in the responses to your book.
10: Yeah, in England the gardens like uh, Stowe, they were definitely conceived to be places of self-discovery. Yeah, That you hang out there, it takes time. Of course, few of us have the amount of time that's necessary to visit them properly. Yes. But if you actually dwell in them, they open up all these spaces of reverie and of introspection. And you were supposed to leave those places as a Transformed person and a more educated person. Interestingly enough, we have several graduate students now
3: looking at the issue of cultural ecosystem services. That is basically the way interacting with nature may very well, for example, give people more mental health and give them more acumen and give them more intelligence. And so, uh, it's actually a research topic now at Stanford. Another place where Stanford is leading the world. Well, this has been really
1: fun, and thank you so much for inviting me. That
5: was terrific. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Robert. Thanks, Robert.
1: Kingscote is a special place because it's an exotic within the campus. The koi in this pool are unique. They're domesticated varieties of the common carp. These fish can live for an unbelievably long time. The record to date is 226 years. If you release them into the wild, they lose their bright coloration within a few generations. And while foraging in the substrate, they stir up the water and increase turbidity. So they reduce the abundance of aquatic plants, which need light to grow, and potentially make the water undrinkable. Globally, efforts to eradicate these invasive pests have not been very successful. Here, they're occasionally found in the San Francisco Creek and Matadero Creek watershed.
0: As Don describes the birds here at Kings you'll want to make your way toward the exit, walking past the staircase leading to the Kings Coat apartment building, and heading upslope toward the path just beyond the picnic tables.
1: There may well be birds of some interest here, and as you scan the area, you might see dark-eyed juncos, oak titmice, spotted towhees. Up the slope, American crows might alight in nearby trees, and common ravens may fly overhead en route to or from the grasslands and woodlands of the dish beyond Juniper osera. Mallards may be lounging near the fountain. Woodpeckers, chickadees, or virtually any members of the suite of oak woodland birds might also catch your eye.
0: Direction 23.
1: When you're ready to leave, turn left at the third small asphalt path at the lamppost it will lead you past a small hedge enclosed patch of grass bounded by a boxwood hedge. At the far end you'll see two stone benches and especially in spring the occasional spotted towhee
0: Directions 24.
1: You pass the faculty club on your right and should notice the oaks that are straight ahead. This grove is a foraging and resting spot for the general suite of woodland birds, titmice, chickadees, Nuttall's woodpeckers, and the like.
0: As Don describes the grove and its birds, walk around to the right, heading toward the large asphalt expanse between the grove and the red and white outdoor seating at the Treseder Union patio.
1: Karen Stid, horticultural analyst for the grounds department, who has kept track of the campus oaks, says that the core campus holds more than 6,700, with thousands more in the arboretum student housing areas, and the foothills. The Kennedy Grove has about 50 of them. Well, a question must rise in your mind. Who planted the oaks? Well, I can assure you that the association of my name with the oaks is a pleasant gift from the Alumni Association, but I certainly didn't plant them and wasn't around to find out who did. Could it have been acorn woodpeckers? Could it have been western scrub jays? They, after all, stuff acorns here or there and probably occasionally encourage uh, the birth of a new tree. Squirrels do the same thing. The big oaks in this grove turn out to be just about the same age. And so that livens the suspicion that perhaps there were biological events involved in their beginning. But who knows? It's a mystery that we simply have to live with. There are plenty of birds around in this grove. Uh, They may include acorn woodpeckers, as we've talked about, but also downy woodpeckers or hairy woodpeckers, rare in this vicinity. Nuttall's woodpeckers are the more common kind of uh, woodpecker, and they might be seen a pair nested just outside the faculty club patio a few years ago. Oak titmice. Chestnut-backed chickadees are two prominent members of the oak woodland bird guilds. And on the ground and in the trees as well, you may see dark-eyed juncos, California towhees, spotted towhees, western scrub jays, robins, black phoebes, and bush tits. All of these birds are linked to the health of oaks and to oak woodlands for various reasons. And that's why the oaks are wonderful hosts for this particular ensemble of birds that ecologists would call a guild.
0: Direction 25.
1: Leaving the grove, begin walking to the path that passes Tresider's umbrella studded patio and turn left toward Santa Teresa Street. En route, you'll probably spot a commensal blackbird feeding under the circular white picnic tables. And farther along, you find a cart parking lot, where electric carts are fed through their extension cords. Stanford is doing its best to promote the growing green fleet. That's a very good move. Just the same, however, the prevalence of carts has produced a certain amount of skepticism on the campus as to whether its efforts to control bicycle traffic and support electric transportation are making the campus safer or more dangerous. Incidentally, many old-time faculty refer to the present time as a time of cart pollution. There weren't very many of those 10-15 years ago. Now they seem to be everywhere. So are bicycles, and this intersection can be dangerous when students are zipping through. Uh,
3: But of course bicycles are one of the most effective ways of getting around, one of the most energy efficient ways of getting around Uh, at a reasonable speed. You actually can probably travel on average faster on a bicycle than you can in an automobile because you have to calculate into the time spent how much time you have to spend to earn the money for the vehicle and then to maintain the vehicle. And automobiles now are estimated to go on average about 8 miles an hour. So you can probably go faster on a bike. Uh, But of course we haven't designed the world around bikes and the best way to get around Stanford campus is to walk and I'm virtually certain that my obituary will say poor doddering old Dr. Ehrlich was hit from behind by a bicycle near Memorial Church.
1: Direction twenty-six. Here you can link to Loop 7. Crossing Santa Teresa and turning right will take you toward Canfield Court and the law school.
0: Direction 27.
1: Alternatively, you can cross Santa Teresa Street, continue down Duena Street, and complete Loop 2. Here again is Catherine.
5: Once we cross Santa Teresa Street, let's stay on the left side of Duena, which is lined by Podocarpus trees. I'll give everyone a moment to cross so they can see the trees up close as they walk. Here we go. These trees are native to East Africa and are gymnosperms, which, you'll remember, are trees that do not produce flowers, but instead make naked seeds. That's what gymnosperm means, naked seed. These seeds have a fleshy outer layer and sometimes make a mess on the ground. Most of these trees seem to be males, though, and don't make seeds, just loads of pollen. I guess not all gymnosperms have needles for leaves like pines and redwoods
0: do. I mean. These trees have narrow leaves, but I wouldn't call them needles.
5: You're right. Gymnosperms have a variety of leaf shapes. Think about ginkgos and their fan-shaped leaves, and of course cycads like we saw in the New Guinea Garden. Those leaves are very large, a couple of feet long, and nearly a foot wide. But then some leaves are tiny, like the leaves of incense cedars, which we'll see up ahead along Panama Street, where it crosses Dueña Street. Direction 28, you should now be
0: approaching the intersection of Duena and Panama Streets.
1: These cinnamon-colored trunks are favored by resident acorn woodpeckers who have established a cache tree about a half block down Panama. You'll see cache trees elsewhere on campus, but if this is the only loop you'll be walking, you may want to take a short detour to get a closer look at the remarkable trove of acorns that have been tapped into this trunk.
3: Acorn woodpeckers, like some other birds, actually pay more attention to their future needs than, say, the United States Congress. They look down the road and they, uh, when acorns are abundant, they grab them and they store them away so they can eat them later on. It's too bad that some of our politicians aren't that bright.
5: (laughs) (laughs) As we continue down the street, I'd like to say something about the cedars we just passed. Incense cedars, Calocedrus decurrens, are native to the Sierra Nevada and can grow very large in the high mountain elevations but the individuals here are still fairly small. They can be identified by their beautiful flat sprays of foliage-covered branches hanging from larger curved branches. They sometimes look to me as if they're linking arms, and their trunks are covered with cinnamon-red, deeply furrowed bark. Direction 29. After crossing Panama Street, head towards the back of Memorial Church, where you will see a fountain flanked by rose bushes and pairs of tall, slender Mexican fan palms and shorter Canary Island date palms with their dull orange clusters of unpalatable dates. The Canary Island date palms are of the same species as those lining a famous long entrance to the university along Palm Drive. Neither palm is native to California, and this time you can trust their common names. The Canary Island palm hails from the Canary Islands off the coast of Morocco, and the Mexican fan palm natively grows in western Sonora in Mexico. Direction 30. As you curve around the church to the right, you'll pass the rest of the Camellia collection. You should soon be able to see the main quad peeking through the arcade.
1: This marks the end of Loop 2.
8: For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.